0: This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments, and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls of the ABA Journal. And today, I'm joined by Casey Sepp, author of Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, it's a pleasure to talk with you, Lee. So the very first time I saw this headline, I think it was in a tweet, and I went, wait, what? When was Harper Lee on trial? But that's not at all what this book is about. Could you give us just a background in how you found this story, got so involved in it, and then ended up writing this book?
1: I think that, you know, a lot of us know that Harper Lee was interested in the law. She obviously wrote one of the most iconic courtroom scenes in all of American literature. But even more than that, she studied law at the University of Alabama, and she helped her friend Truman Capote with the crime reporting that became In Cold Blood. So like a lot of her admirers and people who liked her fiction, I I knew that about her. But what I hadn't known is that in the 70s, She tried to write her own version of In Cold Blood, and she took an interest in a criminal trial over in Tallapoosa County, Alabama, about two hours from where she'd grown up in Monroeville. And I found out about this case and her interest in it in 2015 when I was covering the publication of Ghosts at a Watchman for The New Yorker. And obviously, the whole world was fascinated by this uncovered Harper Lee manuscript, which turned out to be... A very early project of hers from the beginning of her career as a writer. And while I was there, I learned about this other project she had undertaken in the prime of her life. And that was a nonfiction project focused on this criminal trial, which was the culmination of seven years' worth of criminal and civil litigation around an alleged serial killer in this part of Alabama. So, of course, the trial of the title is, as you say, she was, she was never the defendant. Um, she was just in the courtroom covering the case and spent a lot of time after that trial trying to sort out what had happened in the earlier case as well.
0: So you arranged the structure of this book in kind of a triptych. The very first one, you meet this man named Reverend Willie Maxwell. Then in the second, you meet a lawyer, Tom Radney. And in the third, you really dig into Harper Lee. But let's start at the very beginning as you did. Who was Reverend Willie Maxwell and how did he come to Harper Lee's attention?
1: Sure. The Reverend Maxwell was born in 1925 uh, around Lake Martin, Alabama, and in his early years, he was the son of a sharecropper and a housekeeper, and he did what a lot of young African Americans did at that time. Um, He was drafted into the military and came home and started a career at the local textile mill, continued to do some sharecropping around the edges. But because he was such a gifted reader of scripture and preacher, he was ordained by a Baptist church, did a little bit of continuing education and theological education, and became quite well-known for his preaching. Um, He was basically the equivalent of an itinerant or a circuit preacher. He went from rural parish to rural parish and was quite well-known for his preaching and ministry. Um, In 1970, though, um, when he was nearly 50 years old, his wife was found murdered, and he was accused of her murder and he was indicted right away, but wasn't charged until about a year later, and he was found not guilty, um, partly because the state's star witness changed her testimony, and she went on to become the second Mrs. Maxwell. So the Reverend's notoriety quickly turned into suspicion and rumor and innuendo and allegations of murder and eventually of insurance fraud because he had held very lucrative insurance policies on both those wives and other family members of his who died under suspicious circumstances. So in his early years, though, he's just well-known as a hardworking textile worker and itinerant
0: preacher. And I will say, I didn't expect myself to become really fascinated with the insurance industry and insurance fraud, but it was so interesting to learn about the early days when you really could just take out a policy on anyone and... These suspicious deaths, I think you said every single one of them, all five, they were found in or nearby or in one case underneath a car. Yeah. yeah, And they were they were strange, like the second wife, who, again, you know, had decided to recant previous testimony against him in the, the suspicious death of his first wife. He had 17 or at least 17 separate insurance policies on her, and she died less than a year after their marriage. And it was just very strange and very suspicious, and the local community really started to wonder and ask questions. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I think the first thing to say, and, you know, God bless the legal historians who have really um, looked into this, but the history of life insurance really is fascinating, and I felt obliged as a writer in this book to explain how someone like the Reverend Maxwell could take out these policies and profit from them in what seemed to be so straightforwardly a fraudulent manner. So, you know, from the first death to the last, from 1970 to 1977, these are policies that he was taking out mostly by mail, although sometimes in person. And in order to do that, you know, there were these simple forms, and you could find them in magazines or newspapers or pick them up, you know, just the way we do today from the mailbox. And you would write back with, you know, the date of birth, the name of the individual and their social security number and rarely was that person subject to a medical examination rarely was the correspondence address verified that the individual who had taken out the policy you know held a reasonable interest or had some reason for taking out the insurance so In the case of the Reverend, he was able over and over again, multiple policies on multiple family members, you know, everything from nieces to an infant child to his mother to his aunts to his uncles, you know, just over and over again, he took out these policies. And because these insurance companies were for the most part, predatory. These were small policies with with low fees. And he was racking up, you know, some for 1,000, some for 3,000, some for 5,000. Some of them were in the tens of thousands of dollar range, but quite a lot of them. And the reason he was able to go for so long without attracting suspicion is he was taking them out from different insurance companies in these very small amounts. And so, as you said, in the case of one of his wives, 17 distinct policies um, and it was very hard for these, you know, there, there wasn't cooperation across companies. You know, in fact, they were they were in competition with one another to increase the number of people they had insured and the number of policies that were being taken out. So that market was really ripe for fraud. And that's part of the reason the book really digs into that history and lets readers understand how it is that someone like Reverend Maxwell could be conducting business this way. But as for the actual kind of circumstances of the death, what alarmed the local community is the death of his first wife was declared a homicide and he was charged, but pled not guilty, and then was found not guilty. But in the subsequent deaths, you know, they really are suspicious. In some cases, you know, there isn't even a cause of death determination and the police are investigating, but they can't—they cannot bring murder charges when, when no murder has been committed. And so you, you read over these, you know, civil cases where the insurance companies are basically begging a jury to kind of do the math on what's happened here and presenting them with the similar circumstances and, you know, hoping that they will deny payment. But of course, actually the civil case is really strong. It's the same argument. If there hasn't been a homicide, you, you can't withhold payments, so the reverend and his lawyer over and over again prevail in these civil cases and are collecting over and over again on these policies. And in the face of that, the local community comes up with this kind of supernatural explanation, which is you know no one could outsmart so many insurance companies, no one could get away with murder over and over again, unless he had voodoo powers. And that's where the story takes a turn for the even stranger. And what people started to say was that instead of a Baptist minister, the reverend actually was a practitioner of voodoo and he was using hexes and charms and spells to stay out of prison and to profit from these deaths.
0: One thing that I found very interesting and a theme of the book, as you say, you know, voodoo spiritual practices were brought up. He was a Baptist minister. there you know these communities where as you say you know there's it's a very small town but there are four churches because the baptists won't go to church with the methodists and the whites don't go to the same church either you have a background i believe in religious studies and harper lee also seemed to have a very deep background in these communities she knew exactly who these kinds of devout church going folks uh, would be and she used some of those skills it sounds like when she was investigating with Truman Capote as ways to, to reach and, and bond with people. Could you tell me a little bit about that aspect of the threat of of people's religious beliefs and, and how you think you were able to bring that out through the book?
1: Sure, absolutely. I think one of the reasons that I knew the book needed to be structured this way, so it starts with the reverend, and then it tells the story of the lawyer, and then it tells the story of Harper Lee, the writer, it seemed to me that these are three really distinct ways of understanding the world. And, you know, for some people, it's a religious orientation, and that's how they form their moral beliefs, and that's really the way they understand what happens around them. The same is obviously true for a large number of people who process the world in a legalistic way, and they order their lives according to law and order, and they have expectations around justice that come from a legalistic understanding of the world. And then there's this other realm of storytelling and literature, and it's as much about what happened as what we say happened. And so I think there are three really distinct ways of making our way in the world, and Harper Lee seems to have been conversant in all three. You know, she had obviously written a very successful novel. She had studied the law and liked reading, you know, crime novels and following true crime. And I think she was, you know, a deeply religious person, but, but also someone who was fascinated by the role that religion played in the lives of everyday people. So she, of course, comes to town and is drawn to the story of the reverend. And, you know, on the one hand, his religiosity and his position as a member of the clergy protected him from scrutiny and suspicion. At least initially, it was part of why people believed, you know, of course, he hadn't murdered his wife. He was Job. Here he was suffering this tremendous loss. And then there's this moment where, you know, his religiosity and his position and his authority are even more reason to fear him. And so I think she would have been very drawn to the kind of syncretism between voodoo and Christianity, and in general, interested in the superstitions that animate our everyday lives.
0: Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And when we return, we're going to hear more about the Reverend Maxwell's lawyer, who is quite the character in his own right. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back. This is the Modern Law Library with your host, Lee Rawls, and I'm here speaking with Casey Sepp, author of Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. So at this trial and so many other trials, really this almost larger-than-life figure of Tom Radney, who forms the middle part of this book, is featured. Could you talk a little bit about who Tom Radney was, and how you came to learn more about him and more about the role he played in this story?
1: Sure. I think that Tom is again when we think about the things that drew Harper Lee to this story. You know, Tom Radney is truly a larger-than-life character. He was known around Alexander City, Alabama, as Big Tom, and the more you learn about his legal career, you just think, you know, here was a good old boy who was active in the Masonic Lodge and, you know, who um, actually ran for local office and then statewide office. So he had this tremendous career as a Democratic politician in the 60s, um, until he was run out of politics for his liberal integrationist beliefs, but in some ways he's just like her father, A. C. Lee, a stereotypical small town lawyer, and he has a diverse legal practice. And you know, he hires teenagers around town to be his runners, and every so often he has maybe one or two lawyers working with him, and they're doing everything from writing wills to going after you know insurance for car accidents, you know, to helping people get out of these small criminal scrapes, and at a certain point, he starts taking on more and more trial cases. And so by the time the reverend is charged with the murder of his first wife, Big Tom is definitely the go-to criminal lawyer around Coosa and Halapusa County. And if you've run into trouble with the law, he's the person you call. you know. And that is for good reasons and for what some people might believe now to be you know, less than honorable reasons. He was certainly capable of charming a jury. I think that one of my favorite stories I heard was, You know, after one trial, the jury slipped Tom an envelope, and inside was a birthday card signed by all 12 of them. They had just been so taken by him, and (laughs) he'd left such an impression. Um, And, you know, again, some of these stories, I think, are a reflection of how well people can get to know one another in a small town. So, you know, if Tom knew that somebody had a job at the Piggly Wiggly, he might invite his friend who was the manager of the Piggly Wiggly to come to court that day so that they could see he knew their boss. And those kinds of small-town coercion and, um, you know, machinations are really interesting on this side of history. So I really loved getting to know more about Tom's career, and it seems to me that obviously one of the things that drew Harper Lee to this case, you know, if the Reverend Maxwell was the perfect complex antagonist, then Tom Radney was a really interesting Protagonist for the book that she was intending to write. So that's why he really gets his own standing um, in the book and gets an equal third with her and the Reverend.
0: And we have talked about these suspicious deaths and the Reverend appearing in court multiple times. And uh, our listeners to this point may think that, you know, it was a trial of the Reverend Maxwell that she was attending. And It was not, and I don't feel bad spoiling that because, you know, your introduction does that. Could you talk about what the actual last trial, the trial that she attended, was about?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, the the reverend was obviously very notorious in his lifetime, and he was notorious in the way he died, too. And at the funeral of his last alleged victim, a 16-year-old stepdaughter, he was gunned down. And another relative of hers shot him three times in the face and in front of 300 people. So the reason that Harper Lee comes to town, that happens in June of 1977. The trial of that vigilante is held in September of 77. So she has time to come down from New York and really begin her reporting. And Uh, Robert Burns, the man who shot the reverend, was arrested right away. He was arraigned later that summer. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity, but probably the most shocking fact about that plea and the trial that happened later that year in 77 is that he was represented by none other than Tom Ratney. So the same lawyer that had represented the reverend over seven years through all of these criminal and civil cases um, is who then defended the man who murdered him.
0: It does seem like maybe two twists too many. They always say real life is stranger than fiction. If you were going to fictionalize this, and there is some evidence that maybe Harper Lee was planning on doing a slightly fictionalized version, do you think you'd leave anything out? As a writer, when you're looking at this story and as you were plotting out how you were going to write your book, you must have spent time thinking, how would Harper Lee have described this? And how would she have approached it as a writer? Gosh, I mean, that's such
1: a great question. And of course, you know, partly this book is about voodoo and haunting. And of course, I felt haunted by Harper Lee. I wondered at every moment how she would have narrated things or recorded certain things. But I think what's interesting about this story is even before Harper Lee got involved, there was this heightened sense of experience for the people living through it all. And what was very interesting to me, you know, when you go through the transcript of the trial of Robert Burns and you look at contemporaneous coverage, The assistant DA, in his closing argument, basically says to the jury and to the people in the courtroom, you know, we're writing a book and this is the last chapter. And you look at the contemporaneous coverage and reporters for the Montgomery Advertiser are saying it was as if we were in To Kill a Mockingbird. And so people had this heightened sense of reality that it was too much, that it was too hard to believe, that it was, you know, stranger than fiction. And again, that is even before Harper Lee shows up in town and becomes known for trying to turn it into a book. So I think that, you know, if you were a novelist taking this on, I think, yes, you would probably do the kind of surprising thing of winnowing and editing it down so it seems a little more plausible, a little more believable. But, you know, it's just an incredible case that really everyone who was alive in the 70s in this part of the state followed it. And the case got coverage in national newspapers and in regional papers. And, you know, it was a bit of a sensation. And again, that was all before Harper Lee got involved. Tom Radney was obviously a very well-known lawyer around town, but so was the district attorney. You know, he was said to have tried more criminal cases than any other DA in Alabama history. So even just the legal battle in the Burns trial was this, you know, battle of the Titans, and they had very different styles, and they'd gone up against each other over and over again. So it was already this great story that, right, if you were a novelist, you'd probably have to tone it down.
0: I like to give my listeners a feel for the kind of language that the books we talk about use, and there's actually a scene that comes at the very end of Burns' trial that I would love for you to read. Would you Would you mind?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So, right, the context here is Burns is the vigilante, and we're we're nearing the end of his trial, and there's there's been this, you know, huge amount of suspicion about would he be found not guilty? Would he be found guilty? Would he go to jail? What would happen to him? Of course, his plea is that he's not guilty by reason of insanity. So we are at the end, and in fact, he's prevailed with that plea. And the district attorney has very angrily informed the press that, you know, they they shouldn't even bother sending him to Bryce Hospital, which is the state mental hospital in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So that's where we pick up. The the district attorney has expressed his discontent with the verdict. When the staff at Bryce Hospital evaluated Robert Burns, they did not agree with the diagnosis offered by the experts who had testified at his trial. That wasn't very surprising because by then it had come out that those experts didn't even agree with themselves. In a way, Dr. Gunnels later said, killing Willie Maxwell was the sanest thing anybody did all summer. There wasn't a jury in Tuscaloosa County, she continued, that would ever have convicted Burns, who was just doing what the law ought to have done sooner. Then she added, without an ounce of irony, why, I probably would have killed that man myself. Robert Burns was taken to Tuscaloosa on September 28, 1977, and released from Bryce Hospital a few weeks later, less time than had passed between when he committed the murder and when he was found not guilty of having done so. He was back home in time to celebrate Thanksgiving with his family. At its core, the Burns trial had turned on two kinds of primitivism, belief in the supernatural and belief in vigilante justice. It wasn't the first time that a white jury in Alabama had heard compelling evidence of murder yet reasoned their way to an acquittal. Vengeance is as old as violence, and many white Southerners can trace their moral genealogy through family feuds and gentlemen's duels. Across rivers and oceans, all the way back to medieval courts and biblical dynasties. Theirs was a society that not so long ago had written theft into legal treaties with Native Americans and bondage into legal deeds on the lives of African Americans. A society that until recently had believed the law elastic enough to bend without breaking, exempting lynching from the category of homicide. Like those killings, the murder of the Reverend Willie Maxwell had been witnessed by hundreds, but still resulted in no conviction
0: you talk about this sense of place and i both in your book furious hours and of course also in to kill a mockingbird i feel like the reader feels as though they are at this place in alabama but harper lee was actually from this area you know one anecdote you include is as she was doing her rewrites that would eventually become to kill a mockingbird she'd gone back home she was living in monroeville alabama and she felt herself kind of becoming Scout to the point that she wrote one of the more frightening scenes in To Kill a Mockingbird and says she ran straight home. Yeah. Because she'd, she'd spooked herself. How did you go about trying to establish the same sense of place when that that isn't necessarily – that's not your place. You're coming from outside.
1: Yeah, Leah, I think that's a really great question. And first of all, thanks so much for telling that story about Harper Lee and the writing of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's extraordinary. She was back home in Monroeville because her father was quite ill. And so There she was interacting with the source material, even though she'd started the book up in New York City. And I think that you're right. You know, one of the reasons we all love To Kill a Mockingbird is that deep rootedness. And you know, even if you're not from Alabama, even if you've never been there, you feel like you get to know Maycomb and that you really do spend, you know, a kind of sultry summer in this place. And it felt absolutely critical to me that the same thing happened for readers of this book that they feel like even if they've never seen Lake Martin or they've been to this part of eastern Alabama, they get a sense of it. And so I tried really hard and read a lot of regional histories and obviously spent a lot of time in that part of the state and talked to people you know who'd lived there for several generations and tried to represent some of that richness in especially the early chapters of the Reverend to give you a sense of what it was like to grow up here, of what it was like to be a sharecropper, of what it was like to spend time around the edges of this place. Lake Martin is a man-made lake, so there's a very dramatic scene setting of when the lake was first formed. And, you know, Alexander City was a town on the rise that really came of age with the the textile mills that were its main economic engine. So I tried very hard to do that, and I, I hope for readers it feels not only like they've heard a story but they've gone on vacation to this part of the world, and that they've come to know it, and and maybe even that they're motivated to go and see it because, right? Part of the story is how Harper Lee, Tom Radney, and Willie Maxwell—these three very different Alabamians—were all of the same place and formed by the same kind of geography.
0: We have an awful lot of Harper Lee fans in our listenership, and our the you know so many readers of the ABA Journal. Whenever we do a, you know, top. Ten Top 25 list of the best movies, the best books. To Kill a Mockingbird's always there. And I think there are people who know a certain amount about Harper Lee, but she was a very private person. When you were doing this research and studying her, what were some of the surprising things you found about Harper Lee, the person?
1: Sure. I mean, one very straightforward thing that I'm sure will be of interest to your listeners is, you know, she might have dropped out of law school, but she had a very astute legal mind. And one of the most delightful things is every so often I would be reminded of that, you know, she'd refer to a demural in a letter and make a joke about someone's delayed response, or she might very carefully parse the difference between an accomplice and accessory when it came to the Reverend Maxwell. So I was just reminded over and over again that in addition to this whole body of literary knowledge, you know, she would sign letters with the word that evaded Tolstoy, love Nell. You know, so she brought this kind of richness of her knowledge of the world of books um, and, and that was met by her knowledge of the legal world. And obviously, again, with her father and her sister, who both practiced law in the town where she was born and raised, she was just in touch with the law in a way that explains her interest in this case and really just makes it that much more tantalizing to think about what she might have written about the Reverend Maxwell. But I think there is another side of her that I hope readers who pick up the book get to enjoy. And That is a very deliberate correction to the the kind of mythos around her as a reclusive and maybe even miserable writer. And you know, there there are stories of misery and heartache in this book around her writing career. She obviously struggled with writer's block and a drinking problem and perfectionism and all sorts of things like that. But all of those struggles were kind of in the context of a life full of family and friends and this rich cosmopolitan world of New York. I hope that people are surprised to kind of get to know her Manhattan life. You know, here was a writer who was at home at the Frick and she would go to the Met and she loved movies and she loved the theater. And we just get a sense of her as this kind of busy body in the world. You know, again, quite the opposite of recluse. So I hope that people are overall just happy to know more about her life and her friendships um, and about her mind. You know, she was just a tremendously bright woman whose whole life was full of intellectual pursuits. So I hope that that side of her really comes alive, because it was so surprising to me over and over again. I just feel like, you know, on the one hand, she wrote this incredible book that we all love and cherish, but somehow we've kind of caricatured her as a small town, maybe even rubish person, when in fact, you know, she was every bit as brilliant as her book was.
0: And as you say, there's a lot about her friendships in here, but there's a very tender story about a family that she was friends with, the Browns, and one Christmas morning. Could you tell our listeners this story just as sort of a little teaser for other things you may learn about Harper Lee from Furious Hours?
1: Sure. I I think it's a very sweet story about Harper Lee's life and and possibly the best inspiration for us to all be more generous with the struggling artists we know. (laughs) So (laughs) she had these friends in New York and, you know, they knew that she wanted to be a writer. And she actually, she was working very hard as a reservation clerk at an airline in the city and, you know, working these long hours and absolutely distracted from her writing projects. And so one Christmas they decided to give her this gift and, you know, it was a tremendous amount of money and it, it was In order to allow her to take time away from her work and she was so proud she refused to call it a gift she said it must be a loan you know i'm going to repay every nickel and dime you've given me um, but it let her quit her job and devote herself full-time to writing, and that is this critical period of her life when she started writing about Maycomb, and she started writing about Scout and Jim and Atticus and Calpurnia, and that's the writing that turned into To Kill a Mockingbird, and, you know, one kind of delicious fact for folks is if they have a copy of Mockingbird where there's a smiling photograph of Harper Lee, she's in a white top, she's smiling so much because that's the day she repaid the loan. And that photograph was taken by the husband in that couple who had given her this tremendous
0: gift. So it's just
1: quite possibly, you know, the most influential Christmas gift in American literature because it allowed her to produce Mockingbird.
0: So one of the lingering mysteries around this book and just the tale of Reverend Willie Maxwell and Tom Radney and Harper Lee is the existence or... Absence of the book that Harper Lee was planning on writing. I think we were all surprised and taken aback when Go Set a Watchman was discovered and published. Do you think The Reverend will ever see the light of day?
1: Yeah. I mean, Lee, what a great question and one that obviously motivated me the last few years as I was reporting. And I think one of my favorite paragraphs in the book is is the one rife with speculation from people who knew her and people she interviewed in Alex City. And, you know, there has just been a tremendous amount of rumor about this book. And some people think she wrote the whole thing and wanted it to be published after she died because she was afraid for her safety because of the Reverend's accomplice. And, Others said that racial politics were too scandalous, so her publisher had rejected it. Some people think she wrote it and destroyed it. Some people think she never wrote a word one person says that he talked to her sister and she'd read the whole thing and it was better than in cold blood. So over and over and over again these rumors proliferated and I have to say I don't know for sure, but there's certainly no one who would be more excited to read Harper Lee's The Reverend than Casey Sepp. <laughs> Having spent so much time with this case, I just would delight in knowing how she wrote it and um, you know, what she made of the characters in the book. So there's hope still that it will turn up. You know, her archives are still sealed and You know, I think that she surprised us all with Ghosts at a Watchman, and it's absolutely possible she'll surprise us again.
0: Well, Casey, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about Furious Hours. I guess my last question for curious readers is, what is your title about, and where can readers pick up this book, and do you have a website that you would like to give us the URL for if they're interested in learning more?
1: Sure, absolutely. So the title, in, in as few words as I can muster, <laughs> comes from Harper Lee. And in addition to her love of law and literature, she was a she had a tremendous appetite for history and. A Few Furious Hours is how she described the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which took place near Lake Martin, where my book is set, and where she had looked into the life of the Reverend Willie Maxwell. And The Battle of Horseshoe Bend was the last battle in the Creek Wars, and it's when the Native American tribes were displaced from Alabama by General Andrew Jackson. And So it all came to an end in a few furious hours at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. But I loved that phrase because it obviously sounds violent and it invokes the crimes that brought her to this part of the world. But it's also, for me, this image of her, you know, full of ambition and energy sitting down at the typewriter to try and write again. So I love it and I, I felt like, you know, I was always looking for the right title that had a valence with all three of the characters and all three of these stories. So I was so happy to find it. It's from one of the only public lectures she gave in 1984 in Eufaula. So that's where the title comes from. And and I hope that people will will pick up the book at their local independent bookstore, or if you go to my website, kcsepp.com, You can find more information about um, places to buy the book, and I'll be doing a lot of events around the country this summer, too. So love to meet folks who've had a chance to read the book or just want to know more about Harper Lee and this interesting case.
0: Well, thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library with Casey Sepp, author of Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.